Welcome to This Is Hardcore Podcast. Joe Hardcore, for some of you, this might be your first episode. Hopefully, you're listening to multiples. Hopefully, you listen to a couple, and now you're catching back up. It's really awesome to hear from people on social media, and they tell me, man, I listened to this episode. It touched me. I can't wait. I'm going back. I'm going to listen to all of them. That, that really means a lot, and a lot of the kind of guests that we brought on, whether you met them in person, you know of their work, or in our guest tonight's case, their story is inspiring, and there's always lessons, and there is common threads, and the more I've done these, and the more people we spoke to, and the more hours we put into this thing, there's more common denominators than there are things that are completely different about all these different guests that we had, and I want to get into that, but first, I've got a few notes and other stuff that i got to go to, and then we're going to jump right into our guest tonight, Jay Travis Brooks from the Knights Hall. I want to talk about Tri-State Contracting Group right now. Tri-State Contracting, Chris Marguerite, longtime hardcore person from Philadelphia, Delco area. I mean, they do it all. General contracting, interior and exterior remodeling, additions, insurance claim assistance, they got it all. This is a guy who went around the whole entire country, fixed millions of square footage of roofs from Colorado to Florida, all the way up to Carolinas. If you've got a problem, whether it's ice storms or wind, you go to these guys. They get you the money. They get you the nice roof. Or if, you know, I mean, look at Philly. It's coming up. All you New York people moving in. You buy a shithole uh, row home, 150000 put two fifty into it. you got a goddamn palace. Chris is the man. Tri-State Contracting Group is the one contractor that you should call for anything. Small things, big things, they got it all. And seriously, Pennsylvania, Delaware, New Jersey, he's got it. Well, on Instagram, Tri-State Contracting, you can find them at www.tristatecontracting.co. Call them 215-240-0686. Tell them Joe Hardcore, this is Hardcore Podcast sent you. I want to talk about Don't Stand in Line, which is this new docuseries brought to you by um, a longtime member of the Boston hardcore scene on Ranch Ten Yard Fight. And he is a award-winning director, Anthony Moreshi. He's got a great docuseries coming out. It's on pre-sale right now. Uh, you can check it out at Codex, C-O-D-E-C Projects on Instagram. And I'm going to let him talk about it instead of me talking for a couple minutes. And uh, this is his baby, his project. He spoke to... Chris Wren from Bridge Nine, who was episode one. He spoke to Sonny Singh, who was episode two. So uh, our podcast and his project have a lot of synergistic stuff. So, hey, man, take it away. Let us know what you got going on here. Yeah, man, definitely. I think, you know, like you said, there, there's a lot of similarities to what you're doing in, in, in this project. Because, you know, it's it's Chris Wren from obviously Bridge Nine Records and Sully's. Um, and then it's uh, Sonny from Hate Five Six. Um, and then uh, it's Greg Walsh from Wolf Brigade, who's also, you know, a big, longtime hardcore guy. And uh, and then also um, the other dude is Steve Crandall from FBM Bike Company, who's always a big kind of like punk rock hardcore guy as well. So it, it was a, just a, a, a crossover between uh, BMX and, and hardcore and punk. And um, really, originally, I was trying to get like, the, the thought I had behind the project was, um, well, I should back up. I mean, there's so many different reasons that I did this project. I, I'm just, I can't even begin to explain how my mind works <laughs> with this, but um, 
I just know all these guys for years. I think Steve, I, I actually know the longest. I was just thinking about it, but I've known them all for 20 plus years. And they're just all guys that, that have all been um, hammering away in, in one way or another, been successful at what they're doing. You know, it's not just a measure of, you know, monetarily successful. They're just, they're, they're, they're carving their own path and they're, and they're making, you know, for be- lack of better terms, just so, you know, um, they're not following that traditional path. You know, so uh, to me, it was really interesting to see how it's basically that whole DIY ethos where, you know, people came from and how they're making their way in this world um, and just the similarities and like the, you know, successes, failures, their motivations. um, And, uh, you know, I don't know if I'm explaining this correctly, but you're doing (laughs) doing really good. In fact, um so a lot of what you're, a lot of what you're doing is bringing, like, I mean, obviously you've been directing and writing for a while now, and some of the projects that you have, have really um, not only supported hardcore, but have also, you know, given a better look. And I gotta say, there's a lot of hardcore projects that come out and look like ass, and like the chip on the shoulder and stuff really came out spectacular. So from my viewpoint and from what I've been told about the project through Sunny, is that you know, you're putting like real level production into highlighting some of the best qualities of people that came from our world with this amazing work ethic and this DIY program that we were all kind of raised up on. And I think it's great that you're highlighting this and that because of the kind of um, prestige that you have and your professionalism with the, the video that you're actually going to kind of bring it out of like a crappy YouTube video into something more and I think people are going to be excited to check this out. And I'm glad that more people in hardcore are creating these projects that are uh, giving people like this a pedestal and showing off the best of what our world has brought out, you know? Right, right. And, and you know, I hate to talk bad about anyone's projects, um, so I'm not going to. But <laughs> the guys that <laughs> let me, I'm... Let me do that. <laughs> but the guys, you know, the guys that, I, that I'm highlighting here, I mean, they've all kind of done taking things to the next level in their own respects. I mean, what Sonny's done is amazing. I mean, he's like a computer science genius and then adding the video aspect and all the documentation. I I just can't even fathom how he, how he's been doing that, you know? Um, And I got to admit, like a lot of the reason I did this, wanted to do this project was because I was just inspired by them. And I was, and I was curious. I wanted to know like, how the hell have you guys been doing this? For, for so long and, and you know what's the secret you know and i can't say that that there's not necessarily necessarily answers but i think there's a there's a perspective you can get off of this whereas if you're if you're feeling stuck um maybe like you're living someone else's life i think you might come away with this with a whole different attitude and perspective of how you might change your own what you're doing you know and it's not it may not be quick it might it might take a while but like you can kind of you can really control your own life, you know, and that's really one of the things I wanted to, to get across with this. No. And that's a lot of what I was trying to do also in this podcast. So I, I really, I really, when you hit me up and you were telling me, Hey, we have this pre-orders, I really wanted to get you on. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to have you actually on the podcast, but I want our listeners now to be able to take a full opportunity and pre-order for this and support your project. So run through um, how the pre-orders work and then 
how they can actually go ahead and purchase this. And then I really look forward to talking to you, not only about, you know, how you found hardcore and tenure fight, but also how you became what you're doing now and, and your whole vision. So I, I, I hate to keep it short, but I want to go really deep into this later with you. So tell everybody how they can uh, pre-order this and tell everybody, you know, how it's going to work. And then I, I, I really look forward to talking to you and everybody listening to your whole story. Right. Definitely. So uh, pre-orders are up now. You can get those at Codec Projects. That's C-O-D-E-C projects.com. Um, just trying to stay true to the, the whole DIY attitude and, and ethos there. I, it's, I'm selling it directly through a site called Gumroad, which I, I've heard a lot of things about. It's a little bit of an experiment, but it's, there, it's a direct digital download. So when you, you, you order it, um, it's uh, $12 for the 4K version, 10 for the just regular HD version. Um, and there is a promo call, uh, promo code. So you'll get 15% off if you put in uh, the code is pre-order 2020. Uh, and yeah, it's going to be released on 1120. So if you go and order it now, you'll get an email on 1120 and uh, with the, with the download links. So that's, you know. Awesome, man. Uh, we're going to get, we're going to connect soon. And we're going to have you on. So about a week or so after this is airs, we can come back. We can talk about it. And um, I know with some of the pre-order stuff that has been coming out on digital, I think it's great that it's direct download because people are looking for that with the Bane thing. I think there was a screw up. So it's good that you're using Gumroad. Um, again, support this. Don't stand in line. Brought to you by a longtime hardcore guy who is killing it in the video world, who is now highlighting some of the most creative and driven in individuals from our scene. Um, thank you so much. We'll be running this for a bit and I can't wait to talk to you longer. All right. Thank you, Joe. Really appreciate it. So if you've been to this is hardcore over the last couple of years, you may have seen the guys in the back in the tent beating the shit out of each other with the steel weapons. This came about because of Jay Brooks, the guy that we're talking to tonight came up, at a very old school time in, I would say, modern medievalism. I don't like using nerd. I think it's disrespectful. I never liked it as a long hair kid who played Dungeons and Dragons in high school. So I don't like people getting called nerds. But for those of you that kind of glorify it, I mean, this is like the ultimate ass kicker who has an incredible base in OG, Death, uh, OG Dungeons and Dragons. Later he would be a very prominent figure in the SCA society for creative anachronisms, which is where I first encountered him in my own journey, kind of to separate myself and give myself a little bit of an outlet um, multiple years ago. And what's really inspiring about Jay is that instead of just staying in the one world and the one game and being basically the fucking man, he went ahead and kind of took this idea like, oh, I'm kind of bored. I've done all this. He took a bunch of people from America who were also ass kickers and, you know, completely at the top of their game and prowess and stature within their community. And they went across seas and fought in the Battle of the Nations, which you could go on YouTube. You could look at it. It's armored guys who are looking like they're in a street fight, knocking each other down and beating the piss out of each other. And it was incredible to see in the spring of 2012 
guys who have I've only seen fight with rattan, which is like basically solid bamboo kind of sticks, using steel weapons, full armor, punching, kicking, and tackling each other. It was incredible. And since that period, which is now well over eight years, they have created a number of things. Uh, Jay specifically has built an amazing business in Nashville, New Hampshire, called the Knights Hall. And I'll talk about that. Think uh, medieval dojo. and But it's more than that. It's an inspiration. It's now a family-run business. It's so DIY and so fucking punk rock that you got to give it a shot. Even though I don't, I don't know anything about this guy. I never heard anything he plays. It's not always about music with some of these podcasts. And he's an inspiration and he is driven to constantly push the level of his own passion. And there's so many parallels. And in fact, later on, he would even go on the quote, something that we've said multiple times on this podcast in separate episodes. So I don't want to talk too much. He is a great speaker and his story is fucking amazing. So I don't really need to go too far into it. but. Let's roll. All right. We're talking to Jay Brooks here. For people who have been to This Is Hardcore in previous years, you may have seen the guys in the heavy armor smashing the shit out of each other. And all of this was possible because of this man and his incredible life story of going from being a completely DIY, I would even call it sword fighter, but just like literally like the ground up grassroots level of one organization and then through his experiences, took an entire team of Americans across the across out of the country into Europe to fight. And the story is awesome. And a lot of what we're going to be talking about is not only his adventures and the things that he's learned, but just his drive, his motivation and the creative DIY things that they did just to, you know, whether it was through armoring or the stuff they did and to build his business and his brand. And uh, just thank you for being on the show, man. I'm really pleased to be here and, you know, we've known each other a long time and uh, have uh, done some of the same things. So uh, this is going to be a great interview. I'm I like to, I like to start out in the very beginning because it gives a people a good base of like where you came from and you are obviously a new Englander. And uh, what, what do you think came oh, first? You can't tell by my voice, can you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, I, I wonder, does, uh, what do you think was the first influence that kind of brought you, if you could think it was like a movie or a book that brought you to where you're sitting right now? So uh, really, you know, it, it was kind of my mom. All right. I'm going to go back further. Right. So uh, my mom got me and taught me how to read when I was like three, four years old. And so I started reading then and uh, started with comic books. So late sixties comic books. I'm, 55. So I was born in 65 and uh, I started reading, you know, Spider-Man and, and uh, X-Men and of course the Batman and, and, and Superman stuff. But I was really early on into the Marvel stuff and I found Conan and uh, Conan the Barbarian was my dude. And I loved everything that, you know, those comics were about. And then uh, as I, you know, got a little bit older, I started reading sword and sorcery so i started reading the actual robert e howard stories and those super inspired me and then of course i read tolkien and went through you know fritz lieber and and basically the whole science fiction genre uh and i was into that uh i got into gaming in like 1976 started playing D, &D 
Uh, I got my white box sitting on the counter over there, but uh, it's really got into this whole fantasy world stuff. But I was a kid uh, and at 16 years old, my mom said, hey, there's a renaissance fair going on down the road. Do you want to go to that? I'm like, of course I want to go to that. So I went there and uh, I saw these guys fighting in armor. Now, when I say armor, I'm going to say that kind of loosely. All right. They were fighting up. Uh, their body armor was mostly carpet. Uh, they were wearing uh, what had been welded Freon cans on their head. And they were hitting each other with rattan sticks that were covered in duct tape. And uh, one of them had uh, one that was wrapped in toilet paper, like a mace. It was toilet paper wrapped around and then sealed up with, uh, it was a broken baseball bat uh, that had the toilet paper on the end of it. And then it was uh, wrapped in duct tape. And they were beating the hell out of each other with that shit. And I'm like, what the hell is this? And uh, where do I do it? Uh, so I hooked up with this guy. Uh, Joe Shafino, Lord Ferrell at the time. And, uh, uh, and that was my first taste of what became Society for Creative Anachronisms. Uh, I got involved in 81. I had to finish high school. So I disappeared for a little bit. Uh, and then little did I know I was going to become a dad at 18 years old. So, uh, so my college stuff got put aside. Uh, but I ran into these SEA guys again later in the year. And I said, okay, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna go back to doing this. I can do this locally. So I started fighting and I started fighting with Feral and uh, started getting trained, uh, learned how to use a sword. Uh, and it was everything I wanted it to be. Uh, so those, those stories that I'd read as a kid, like how do I become this barbarian warrior? And uh, I was also a competitive swimmer. So I took my athletics, mixed it with my nerd stuff and I became pretty successful. Uh, and uh, I would attend 40 to 50 events a year, fighting, uh, traveling up and down the East Coast. Uh, so I was at pretty much everything, anywhere you needed to be, I was there to go fight. And uh, I love I love fighting. I love punching people in the face with a, with a sword, you know? You just hit them, snap them, uh, or hit them with a pole arm, hit them with an ax. I've always loved doing that. Uh, but I also found that there were people who needed to learn how to do this. And Farrell was busy uh, running uh, our whole organization on the East Coast for a while as Earl Marshall. So I started training our young fighters. And so I started training people in 1985. Uh, I rapidly got pretty good at the sport uh, and started winning major tournaments uh, in 1987 and 88. And I didn't stop winning major tournaments in Society for Creative Anachronisms. Uh, the last big one I won was in 2010. Uh, so in all uh, of the 20 uh, crown tournaments I was in, uh, I was in the semifinals twice, the finals 18 times, and I won 10 Royal lists, nine of them crown tournaments, one a coronet. So uh, those were big deals in that sport, as you know. Uh, I became a master at arms in 1988 after I'd won my first one. Uh, so I enjoyed all of that success running armies and, you know, the SEA armies. That was a lot of fun, but I was bored. Uh, I kept doing the same things again and again, like, Hey, 
I haven't won that crown tournament in five years. Let's see if I'm decent enough to go do that again. Right. And so I just try to go challenge myself. Meanwhile, I'm training other people to be my sparring partners and training them to become champions on their own, which many of them did. And many of them still are. Um, but I was bored. And so after I stepped down as, as King in, uh, 2011, uh, I said, what do I do now? Right. I, I was, I didn't want to do that again. You know, I didn't need to. Uh, and so this guy, uh, says, Hey, have you seen what the Russians are doing? I'm like, what do you mean? What are the Russians doing? And I got this video of a battle of the nations two uh, at Coyton castle in Ukraine. And I saw this video and it was October of 2011. And I go, where the fuck has this been my whole life? Oh, I hope the language doesn't bother anybody, but I swear a lot. No, so, not at all. <laughs> all right. So uh, anyway, I'm like, where the fuck has this been all my life? And uh, where is anybody here in the U.S. doing this? So I went online and I found uh, this guy, James Etherington, uh, who was captain of Team USA, but Team USA had never fielded before. So it had been, he'd been captain for, like two years trying to get a team to go overseas. And uh, I'm like, well, we got to do this thing. And Daniel stool was in the group. Uh, and he was of the same mind. We got to do this stuff. And next thing I know, I was calling my friends cause I was doing it. I'd never gone over there and fight fought steel before. Uh, I'd been fighting with rattan weapons. That's what SEA is. For those who don't know, it's a, it's a rattan weapon, uh, usually weighs, three, you know, swords three and a half pounds or so made out of rattan and you hit each other with a wooden club. Uh, and then the pole arms are up to seven feet, you know, long uh, with padded ends and stuff. So it's really safe stuff, right? But it can break your bones and give you some good bruises. And if you're not wearing the right equipment, you know, send you to the hospital. But this stuff was like, oh, shit, they're using real swords, real axes. Uh, I'm in, let's do this. Uh, and, uh, so I told two friends and they told two friends, it's like that hair commercial where, you know, suddenly we had a team and, uh, we went over to Poland and fought and, uh, to make that happen, uh, I had to create a company, um, uh, and that company was the company that carried our insurance because if we're going to have events, you need to carry insurance, especially if you're hitting each other with real swords. You know, people have homes and cars and they don't want to lose that stuff. So you got to have insurance. And it's the right thing to do anyway. So we built a company to do that. And uh, at the same time, I realized that, you know, I was a 46 year old man at the time. And I was looking at the people that I was going to be fighting that were coming out of Russia and they were all in their freaking 20s. Like, all right, so how do I compete with athletes in their 20s? Because not only were they uh, in their 20s, but they were all athletic, right? This sport that we do now is much more athletic than the one that we had done before. So, like, how do I do that? Well, opening the Knights Hall was the next logical uh, progression, and it happened concurrent. So when I said, I'm going to do this within two months, I had the Knights Hall open. So I had a place for myself to train. I was the only fighter here in the Northeast at the time. Uh, 
uh, we brought in a few by January. We even had a practice here at the Knights Hall by January uh, where we had four or five of us fighting, uh, most of whom washed out. They were like, okay, this is too rough for us. And out they went. Uh, but a few stuck. A few stuck. Uh, one in particular, uh, Dave Olson, who lives in upstate New York. He's kind of he's kind of a, uh, a mountain man, uh, Luddite. He's not like online or anything. He just goes out in the mountains and hikes. And then he shows up to my place to fight and travel with me overseas when we go, you know, go fight. But uh, those we were the first two guys uh, like in New England doing this. And then uh, there was a tournament in February. So we start practicing. Uh, we open the hall in December. In January, we start practicing. I find out there's a tournament in Quebec City um, or the suburbs of Quebec City. Uh, in uh february so daniel stool stephen green uh and mike burkhart uh sir balin from new york if you remember him uh so we all fo all four of us there were five of us who said they were going but one one bailed out and, and stayed in jersey and the rest of us went to uh uh quebec and fought and tied with the team of uh Russians, Ukrainians, and Poles that were living in Toronto that were at there called the Scalagrams. So we tied uh, for, with that event. Uh, my very first fight, fighting with steel, I cut a guy's finger off. Uh, not something you expect uh, your first time fighting, uh, your first no. round. Uh, but cut through his gauntlet, cut down into his finger, and basically pulped the finger down to the knuckle so there was really no finger left. It just, they couldn't sew anything on because there was nothing really left. It was just mush. Uh, armor's a lot better now. <laughs> the, the early days, it was like the Wild West. Uh, so that was one of the things that when I started up the armored combat stuff here in the U.S., that I focused on armor to make sure that hands were safe. So we basically got rid of finger gauntlets, uh, made sure that certain materials uh, could be used so we could do this stuff safely. So there was a lot of like little pieces of this. We had to build it from scratch. We didn't really speak Russian. So uh, reading the Russian stuff didn't really work. Uh, most of it was guidelines uh, from overseas. So I built a rule set uh, and then uh, we used the rule set. Uh, we went a few years, a couple of years, uh, within a couple of years, we were winning gold medals overseas. So we did pretty well. Um, and then that was consistent for a number of years. Um, in the meantime, I had a partner and, uh, that did not work out so well. So we parted ways, uh, a year and a half ago. Uh, and it's been one of the best things that could have happened for me and my opinion, the sport, uh, we've opened it up significantly. Um, so backing up, uh, and by the way, I've been on a stream of consciousness here. So, uh, some of this might seem a little disjointed, so I'm going to bounce back and let you ask some questions and I can start filling in those gaps. No, it was actually great. And that lead in was, uh, exactly what I was looking for, because one of the things that you brought up early on in the eighties, when you were still involved in SCA correlates to exactly how our culture was, is, and was from that point onward, where, if you're on the East coast, it doesn't matter if the show is in Boston, Buffalo, Pittsburgh, Virginia, you were going and, and you specifically 
did absolutely all of that. It didn't matter where it was. And that just kind of shows again, one of the many parallels between the hardcore punk culture that I came from to find SCA. And what I was realizing once I was in was like, Oh shit. Yeah. I guess we're traveling to new England this weekend or, Oh no, we've got to go to Virginia. This everybody in the van. Yep. And that, and it was exactly van van trips, road stops. And instead of money, yeah, literally (laughs) who's got it. Who's get, who's getting an S tank of gas. And uh, you know, we were packing cars up and instead of putting gear, we were putting swords and shields. So people who are listening are definitely immediately tied into what you were talking about. A thing that you were, you glanced over because I know you're not focusing on SCA, but just to get perspective for listeners is Jay is very uh, humble about his presence within the community. And uh, obviously he won multiple tournaments and is a, I would say a, like a national and world known SCA person and has an insane uh, influence in the style of fighting that many people have taken because of different things that he would uh, advance and change over time. And although he's like, oh yeah, I did this. And then I did that. Like his name and his SCA presence is still synonymous and people are very aware of him. And then typical to what happens is you kind of get bored. So I, when I, when I, when I, when you brought up the, the, the Russian fighting, do you think the hardest part about transitioning as an SCA person was the fitness you would need or uh, learning the different tactics that would change because you're not doing SCA fighting anymore? Well, I, it was a combination of both. And let, let me back up to the SCA piece. Uh, I am very proud of my accomplishments within the SCA. Um, I have uh, had an influence on a number of people's lives. Uh, and they've had influence in my lives. I have lifelong friends that I developed there and I still keep touch with most of the, most of, or a good number of the folks that, uh, I spent time with there. I'm just a little on the busy side now, so I don't get to do it as often, but I would love to. And once things stabilize a little bit, maybe I'll, I'll, you'll see me playing that some more. I took a lot of what I had done in the SCA and I brought it into steel and it took me about 18 months to 24 months to really kind of figure out what direction that we needed it to go in. Uh, we had preconceived ideas based on a rule set that we'd played with for 30 something years, which is a great way to get ready for doing steel fighting. Um, that said, uh, once you start adding punching, kicking, throws, uh, hitting st- people from behind legally, uh, and no thrusting at all into the mix, there are some tactical changes that need to be made, uh, and there are certainly a lot of training uh, differences in it. Uh, the cardio aspect of steel fighting is significantly higher, uh, and it... it it's a lot more dynamic style of fighting. But when I go back to SCA stuff, uh, a lot of those fundamentals, I teach on a daily basis right now. So things that I've been teaching for 30 years or 35 years, I teach on a day-to-day basis. Footwork. I developed a footwork style. Uh, I looked at what Farrell was doing. It was good for him at five foot six and being a very defensive fighter, but I'm six foot. Uh, and I wanted to be a more aggressive fighter. 
but I didn't want to do it the same way as everyone where you just get in uh, and, and slug it out. I wanted to, to be more of a, of a cerebral fighter control measure uh, and time, which is distance and time on blows. So how you deliver a blow, I wanted it to be where it was optimum for me and a disadvantage for you. So I would fight a lot of outside style fighting and pick my moment. I've got all day. I don't need to rush this. Victory comes once. I don't have to rush it. So sometimes I'd have a fight that would go 15 minutes. Sometimes I'd have a fight that might go 45 minutes against a top level opponent, but it would go my way most of the time because I took my time uh, and you need to develop patience in this sport. Patience is less uh, necessary because a lot of it is counted blows. So if I'm super patient and I only throw five blows and I only land three of them, I only get three points. So uh, I need to up my number of blows thrown in this particular sport. So I had to change uh, a lot of the way uh, that strategy works. Yes, you can be patient. Yes, you control range, but you need to also be a lot more active. Uh, so those were changes. Uh, building throws into your strikes is another thing, right? So I can throw a sword shot which can now turn to a scoop around the head, which can now help me do a throw over my leg, right? So, you know, so you're integrating judo into sword fighting, which is done in the medieval fight books. If you look at medieval fight books, it's all there. There, they, Fiori has it all through him. Uh, you look at Lichtenauer, it's all through there. So there are historical fighting manuals that have a lot of the stuff that we're doing today, but we're also taking from modern martial arts, and we're taking from SCA and we're taking from anything that we can glean to add this together to create a, a curriculum to train fighters. With the Knights Hall, you started out and it was an old, was that the old mill or is that just a, a commercial property at the time? Uh, it was an old shoe mill in Nashua, New Hampshire. So it was a, the building was built in 1919. Uh, it, it had uh, a shoe company here for, you know, 40 or 50 years. It sunsetted sometime in the early 80s. The mill was vacant. It got turned into commercial condos. And uh, uh, there was a radio station in this building that had uh, moved away. And the property was just sitting empty for nine years. And so uh, I was hunting for space. I found cheap space in what was their storage area uh, for the radio station. I bought or rent uh, leased a, uh, a small, basically 800 square foot space uh, just to do fighting. I'm sorry, 1200 square foot, 1200 square foot space. And then um, another couple of years later, I rented the remaining space on that floor. So we went to 2400 square feet. 2015, I got another 2,400 square feet underneath it. Then I took another 1,000 square feet to the left of that. Then with the room I'm sitting in now, my office, is a, another uh, 700 square feet added to that. So we're growing, 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 uh, and filling this place with students. We've got about 50-some-odd armored fighters training here, and then maybe 15 or so that are uh, on their way up. 
So now, they'll be armored within the next year. One of the things that I remember from your transition out of SCA into the Battle of Nations is that you took kettlebell and a lot of the, the physical training very seriously. Is you think that your personal journey kind of helped lead you to build that into the Knights Hall because you're already doing that on yourself? Absolutely. Absolutely. So as I was saying before, you know, I said, how does this 46-year-old fat man, because at the time I was about 60 pounds overweight as well, uh, how do I can you know, compete against 20 something year olds. And that was, well, I'm going to have to turn myself into a, into a fighter again, uh, and, and drop some age. Uh, so I dropped 60 something pounds within a year and a half, naturally, you know, just going paleo. Uh, so I went through a paleo diet and I started using, uh, I went to a, a company called art of strength, which used, uh, hit training, uh, which I adopted a lot of that for when I came back and started night, you know, doing that type of stuff for Knights Hall. Like what was successful when I trained with these folks to get myself ready for 2013, 2013, uh, I was a U.S. champion, uh, for the second year and I was fighting in France that year. And, uh, I went from, uh, 263 pounds down to 195 pounds. So, between November of or October of 2011 to then to to May of uh, 2013, I was down to 195. Wow, so, that's incredible, man! And it was all muscle, and you know, I I was I was in pretty good shape. They they called me Little J for a little while, right? Because <laughs> I had dropped so much space and so much weight. Uh, and uh, I realized there that it was great for duels, but not great for melee, how light I'd become. So since then, I put on about 20 plus pounds of muscle. Uh, I, I kind of, my fighting weight is like 215 now. That's my fighting weight. I'm, I'm about 15 pounds heavy at the moment, 229. Uh, so I'm getting myself back in shape. We have U.S. Nationals in a couple of weeks. Uh, so I'm going to try and uh, be in better shape for that than I have been for a little while. Now, I want to break down for people listening who uh, need to understand some of the things we were speaking on. When he talks about melee, that's a group fight. And that's literally an armored street brawl. If you've been to this hardcore, you've seen it. But Jay, as a champion, is literally going out straight up one-on-one, long sword steel. And he's talking about he's going to hit you way more fucking times than you're going to hit him. And uh, – I have to wonder because SCA and obviously you spoke on the rattan, how much of a difference did your body feel the first time you were really striking people using steel? Did you, did you feel any kind of like arthritis or anything like that because of how much different the weight was or because of how long you fought? Was it more natural to you? Uh, so it felt pretty natural to me. So uh, one of the, the things I was blessed with was a good trainer early on. Farrell showed me, you know, edge alignment right from the beginning and so when I transitioned over to steel, I didn't have a transition period for, for making sure my edge was aligned. It was because I indexed my swords. So I always had indexed my rattan swords, which basically lines them up. So uh, let me get the, in the camera. There we go. So you're, you're lining up whatever weapon you're holding in this space and where your knuckles go, your blade goes. So as soon as I realized that when you're using the real sword, 
the knuck, you know, wherever your knuckles go, the blade goes. That's what I'd been doing with rattan. So I never had that issue. What I did find though, is that the steel swords, uh, if you're just doing the duels weapons, the one-handed swords hit significantly lighter than rattan does, but they are so much faster and so much harder to track with the eye. So your defense has to be spot on with them. Uh, and that's why you'll see when you watch those fights, a lot of the time people aren't doing any defense. They're just trying to have as much offense as they can because they can't track it. They have trouble tracking it. So they're just better off swinging a lot more than blocking. I like blocking. I like reposting. Uh, I've been doing sword work my whole life now. So, you know, doing a rollover and, and snap back, you know, as a defensive and followed with an offensive move, that's great. You know, that's the way it should be. And uh, the folks here at the hall are being trained in that way. They're being trained the way I was trained. And then I've taken and created new training systems I have a whole blocks and clocks system for how to do combinations, how to train combinations, how to do pell work, how to mix different blows into your repertoire. Uh, so you only know how to do two or three blows. These are the combinations that you can do. Now you've learned another blow. How do you add that into your combinations? Where does it fit? Okay, well, here in the system, you plug it into this spot, and these are the combinations you can now do. And uh, with between the pels and the coordinates, uh, with the blocks and clocks, you can figure out how to do sword fighting uh, by number. So it's pretty cool. I know that cerebrally, you're always constantly upping out just not only your tactics, but how you train. And one of the coolest things, if you're ever on the Knights Hall uh, Instagram, which I follow, is how much you've incorporated, be it boxing, MMA, and you brought up judo. Do you think that it was hard in the very beginning as you were building the first U.S. team? to get these people who are used to mostly SCA to start encompassing other disciplines to be better fighters or were people Absolutely. more into it? No, no, no. Uh, it's hard to get everyone who knows everything to learn anything new. Right. Yep. And so you have to figure out what you don't know. And if you don't, you know, if you don't know what you don't know, you can't figure it out. Some folks, uh, are only happy with doing the things that they have been successful at. Uh, it's hard, you know, so fighting is, is a difficult thing, right? And climbing out of the SCA uh, bottom fighters to the top of the heap, that's a long journey. And, you know, for folks who are listening to this, you know, for many people, it takes a decade or more to get to the top, right? To get that top echelon of fighter. Well, once you're there, you know, it's human nature to want to cruise and go, hey, I've I've learned everything because your ego will lie to you. Well, you have to take your ego and toss that fucker, right? It doesn't mean anything, especially when you're trying to do something different. And so we went over there with some arrogance. I felt we got our asses kicked the first time, even though we came in fifth out of 14 countries. Uh, I still feel we were a big country, so that helped. but we felt like we got our asses kicked the first time in Warsaw. So when I came home, I redoubled my efforts. And that's when I brought in, you know, training others with, you know, kettlebells and ropes and uh, basically uh, what I call night fit, which I created a uh, training program 
Tabata-based training program, so uh, interval training, but based off of Professor Tabata's work, uh, which is a 2010 ratio for our stuff, and then having them doing body exercises. So you're doing you're doing your push-ups. Now you're doing burpees. Now you're doing sprints. Now you're doing kettlebells. Now you're and so you're doing that, and you're doing that muscle confusion and teaching your body how to recover. And that was the thing that we didn't have was recovery. So getting our cardio up, teaching our bodies how to recover, and then and figuring out, you know, you're in 65 pounds of armor. SCA armor is significantly lighter because it allows plastic and padding and you're not fighting with real steel and all of that stuff. SCA armor generally is, is in that 30 to 35 pound range for your more armored fighters. Some folks get their shit down to like 20 pounds, 25 pounds. Yeah. And that's maybe a helmet and some extras, <laughs> right? A helmet and some greaves. And that's what I do a lot of the times when I go do SCA, I have a titanium uh, chainmail shirt. I have my greaves, a helmet, some elbow cops, something on my hands and I go. Right. And it's like running around naked uh, compared to this. And I have a good suit of armor, you know, so Craig Nadler made me a great suit of armor. Uh, it weighs 50 pounds with my helmet on for steel, which is pretty good, but it's still heavy for SCA. That said, I've got a great suit of armor. I learned how to move in it. When I went and fought in France in 2013, me in my armor was lighter than me out of my armor was the prior year. Wow, that's incredible, man. That's awesome. So that made a hell of a difference. And so I took my successes that we had there and then the successes that we had the following year in Spain, uh, where we, you know, as a group took home seven out of nine gold medals and a silver and a bronze in the other two events uh, that year and went, okay, what was successful here? Why were we successful here? And I integrated that into our training system and I took guys. So basically from 2016 to 2019, uh, our local top group, my executioners, we didn't lose uh, an event that we fielded at. So or sometimes our team would go and we'd give the title to a few guys from our group who would go travel as executioners, but our core team didn't lose for basically four years. So, uh, the, so what we were doing, what we integrated worked out really well, uh, in that environment. Now you began teaching that, uh, only after you guys returned from Poland when you did Knights Hall, right? Or would you start Knights Hall with the training kind of as a business? So, I created Knights Hall to train me first. And then the next year it was me and a few guys. And then my son Kat joined us here, right? So he, he joined me here in New Hampshire. And so it was me and Kat training with Dave Olson and a couple of others who weren't really ready for this journey. Uh, and they, they never made it. They never went. Um, and then uh, in 2014, uh, when we came back, I'd been laid off from work at the end of 2013 and uh, helped start up the IMCF, which is the International Medieval Combat Federation. Uh, I wrote the rule set for the international organization, which became one of the two main governing international bodies. 
so I wrote the fighting rules for that and served on its board and its presidium for eight years. Um, but in that world, uh, when I came home, I'm like, you know what? Why don't I just turn the Knights Hall into a professional business? I don't have any students today. I don't have any paying students, but I'm going to do this anyway. So I pulled it out of my ass and said, I'm going to start this business. I'm not going back to work for a major corporation. I'm getting out of the corporate world forever. I don't want to fucking do that anymore. Uh, I want to do this. This is my passion. This is my love. And I'm sure I can train people to do this well. And so I started up a, a fighting school, never having run a martial arts school itself uh, out of the blue. And uh, here it is. Uh, we've been paying customers for six years. Um, and like I said, I've got like 50 something, uh, fighting students here. So that's incredible, man. I mean, the, one of the things that I looked at when, uh, I was at home watching Poland in 2012 was that you fielded all top ranked SCA fighters of the Rome renown. But as I watched more and more, you were bringing in younger folks. And I don't know, would, would you say that you just realized that SCA uh, people who were learning older times weren't really feeling the uh, what you were talking about the 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 extra weight of the armor, the tactic change. So you started going more towards a younger group, or to just come organically. Uh, I think it's a bit of both. So so one of the things I'm blessed with is you know I was a young father, uh, and my son Cat decided that he liked doing the same shit I did. So we have a great relationship. And so it allowed me to bond with younger people because I have a good friend that's young. And so I didn't look at the world always with my older, you know, almost boomer eyes, right? I looked at it uh, as, a, as a younger man uh, and going, hey, look, we need younger people that are athletic to do this sport if we want to compete long term. Great. We had some early success with some some fossils like myself uh, who were good at this other sport who came into this and did pretty well with it, but the sport is evolving and we're not going to stay on top long based on some old tricks that we know because these young guys coming up are going to learn those tricks too. And if they've got a young athletic body that can recover faster from injury and they can keep training they're going to they're going to surpass us. So, being able to understand youth was one item. Uh, being in tune with that, understanding my own failings as I was aging out and what I was having struggles with, uh, and knowing that the future lied in in youth. Uh, we could have short-term success, but if we didn't develop a real strategy long-term, we would have short success, and then we'd have a long period of drought until we figured it out. I didn't really want us to have any drought. So there were others in the sport who continued to do the things that they had been doing, and I trained my people to do it this new way. And the new way quickly overcame the old way uh, in the U.S., and uh, and here we are today. A lot of the folks that are from my era of this are aged out of the sport, beat out of the sport, 
or have quit because they don't have success. Most of them are gone. I know early in the, uh, the idea was, Hey, I just want to play this sport. This is different than what I've been doing. And you went into Quebec and you got excited. And after Poland, obviously you were talking about how you didn't feel like you guys performed so well, but I think the really interesting aspect is that you guys weren't content with just trying to compete only on the international stage. And you guys pretty quickly were talking about a U.S. level uh, entire league. And when you're talking to people listening, that's what he's talking about. Um, the executioners are one of the many teams in the armor uh, armored combat sports league. And this is a league that's throughout the country. And this is something, again, we're talking about a guy who had been training 30 years and then he hears, Oh shit, they're doing this in Europe. You then built this in America, man. Like as a pioneered and medieval sport, which is, uh, I, there's always that shared clip and it always drives me nuts of the two Russian fighters in a boxing ring. And you constantly see it on YouTube and people send it to me. And I'm like, that's not even the cool shit. Oh, we the M1 stuff. Here. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, we have our own shit here. And, and you, you specifically brought that to America. What made you, I mean, obviously besides your interest, what made you see that, that, that we could do this in America? So uh, for one, I'm American. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, uh, Anything we set our mind to, we can we can help ourselves become amongst the best on the planet at it. Uh, I felt that this sport was something that Americans would like. If I like it, you know, why wouldn't other people like doing it? And as you know, as you were watching it, as we came home from Poland, you know, watched us do it. Uh, when we came home, we had a lot of people interested. Uh, we had 7,500 people sign up for the following year within two months after coming home from Poland. Of those, really 20 or 30 of those people actually did it. We had all these people who were interested, but they never wanted to do it. It was too far, too inconvenient, all of that stuff. And I said, how do we not do this insularly. So, you know, I could create a club and just focus on my own group and make my group as good as I can make it. But if I don't have competition, how am I going to know how good I am? How am I guys going to test themselves to see how, how their training's working without having to travel overseas? You know, overseas is expensive, Right. Not everyone can afford to do that. And I don't think we should have to do that to go get a good fight. And so I created a system, which I call the chapter system, which was if you can get three people in your city to do this thing, you can start a team. And I created a rule set so that teams, instead of having tournaments where you've got 10 teams and they all fight in a, in a bracketed tournament, I've made head-to-head -head challenges like a basketball game where you've got three guys and you got three guys and you can make those three guys fight against each other. And it was at, at that point uh, to 11 points. So you fight uh, at least 11 rounds against each other. But if I score, you know, five points and you score seven points, right? So now you're to get to 11, you're talking 17 rounds, 18 rounds. 22 rounds so what it did was it gelled those teams you either got good or you got gone 
right? You, yeah. you either went through the meat grinder or you just didn't want to play in that. And you went and sat off to the side and said, hey, I'm a fighter sitting over here, right? Look at my armor. But the guys fighting, the guys who are doing it, those are the fighters. And we, you know, we helped start 70 teams across the country within five years. And I'm still helping teams create, uh, create teams. Uh, we want to have, you know, not have to have anyone go to Europe. In fact, I'd love to have the Europeans come here. Uh, and we've got that happening now. So uh, as my vision was that we could create a U.S. league that is as competitive as any league on the planet, including the ones in Russia, where they've been doing this since the 90s. Um, it's just going to take us a little time and some cooperation. Um, I believe that an open source way of doing this uh, is the way to go. So you're not like trapped in your one league. You could, I don't care if you fight in my league and, and that guy's league and some other league across the, the waters. I don't care. If you have a team, you follow our rules, you get our membership. So that means you're covered by insurance. You fight at our tournaments. You have a good time. You'll come back. If I can't create a good time for you, then I don't deserve you being at my events. So uh, I want us to have good events. I want our fighters to be top notch. And all of these things go hand in hand. If you have good events and people are having fun, people are having fun, they're going to want to start up a team. They start up a team. They start training. They get those people training. They fill up their city. Oh, I was in Cincinnati this week and I saw these people fighting. I want to do this in Lexington, Kentucky. Next thing you know, you got a group in Lexington, right? The group in Lexington, they put on, they do a pub crawl in armor. They do some fights in a bar. Guy in a bar is uh, from Indianapolis. He decides he's going to start up a team there. We help him do that, right? And that's how I want to see this grow organically across the board, word of mouth. Uh, and the faster I can get the word of mouth out there, the faster people want to get involved. Uh, the more people who want to get involved, the better off we all are. We'll have better fighters. In relation to you saying open source, we have a lot of people on the podcast who basically are the open source in their specific discipline, whether it's Sonny and with him doing videography, Chris, who was our first episode, he's uh, 25 years of booking, um, uh, putting out records, myself with booking. And, and I have to say to you that you guys have so much experience on the SCA side. How hard was it switching and looking for the open source to kind of figure out the, 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 the armor and how much did you guys have to actually do yourselves in the beginning before you got down the right kit that would work in what you're using now? Uh, we had to do a lot of work early on to figure out what was what. And, uh, and that evolved, right? So early on, we weren't really given much for resources. No one overseas really helped us. We got the most help from the Polish team uh, early on, they gave us some some tactical stuff and gave us some ideas on equipment. But we had preconceived ideas early on and very limited resources on where to get gear. Uh, rapidly, we figured out here at the Knights Hall that we wanted to get equipment made very similarly to the way the Russians and Ukrainians were having their armor made. And I lucked out in that Craig Nadler 
is an actual former SCA armorer who made great armor and he lives four miles from me. And I've known him for some years. So he worked on a suit of gear and tried it out. Now he owns a, an armor sales company. He doesn't make armor anymore. Uh, he has Nadler Metalcraft and he sells armor uh, that he imports from uh, Ukraine, Russia, Poland. And now he uh, has worked with manufacturers in India. And you, you say India and armor and you go, oh shit, don't do that. But he actually has gone there and you know, shown them the metallurgy that needs to be done, tests everything, right? So the armor that's going to come out of him out of India is going to be good armor for our sport, uh, which probably makes some people cringe, but you know, that's the way it is. We need to get more armor and we need to make it less expensive for people. When I first started, uh, and I'm going to go back to that do-it-yourself piece, uh, my first year in the sport, I spent $11,000 on armor alone. I went through three suits of armor, two helmets. The helmet I wear now is the same helmet I wore to Poland uh, in 2012. I have had two other helmets since that I didn't like. So I've gone back to my original both times. Um, It's a stainless steel, 13 gauge stainless helmet uh, that is probably time to retire it. Uh, but we learned a lot of things. We learned about concussion padding. So early on, uh, we were lucky that one of our original guys, his, uh, his wife was a doctor in, um, basically dealing with brain injury. Uh, so she was super cautious about it early on, brought up the concerns. And I started looking at, uh, materials being used by, uh, the military, by sports, uh, other sports like football and baseball and hockey and looking at their padding systems and then integrating that with ours so we could, you know, stop, you know, traumatic brain injury uh, from occurring on American fighters. And we've done a really great job of it. In fact, the first few years, they couldn't believe that we could take all those shots to our heads. It's only because we padded our helmets super well and made our, our helmets were a little thicker in steel. No, that's actually oh, um, you touched on CTE with that, so I'm glad we got to speak on it. When you started in the Battle of the Nations, um, I remember it was run by uh, Russians, and then you had brought up the IMCF. And for those who are not medievalists, uh, break down how you guys kind of changed the format and kind of brought you guys to those awesome castles that you've been at the last couple of years. Yeah, so uh, we did the. Uh, uh, we were involved with Battle of the Nations in 2012 and 2013. Uh, we had some disagreements with how the events were run. Uh, so we, the United States, and 15, 16 other countries, 15 countries was the first signature, uh, got together and said, hey, look, we're going to host our own world festival uh, for these events. And uh, we created what was called the International Medieval Combat Federation to oversee the sport. Uh, There are now 30-something countries involved in IMCF. Um, I'm not going to go into details, but we we didn't like the way things were run. I haven't been involved with them since. I've heard there's been a whole bunch of changes with with that organization. Uh, And uh, I heard good things lately. So... Uh, my judgment is still out on that, but, uh, 
Uh, I like the IMCF's way of doing business. So I'm going to continue to work with them quite a bit more. Yeah. One of the striking immediate changes I saw was just the, the sites and it looked very medieval. And I know that uh, people who are more from the Ren Faire thing or just the hardcore kids may not get that, but seeing a bunch of my friends that I knew from SCA go over and fight in Spain and fight in these other countries and literally look like something out of a movie was incredible. And so, uh, you guys did really good with that, man. Thanks. Thanks. That was, so that's one of the, one of the agreements we made early on with IMCF is that we we're going to try to find top notch venues to hold this event. Right. So it is always held at a historical castle of some sort. Uh, and we want it to look right. So the first year, uh, 2014 was the first year for IMCF, um, and we put it at Belmonte Castle. We we're lucky enough to have the count uh, at our meeting uh, for the starting of the IMCF, and he uh, allowed us to use his castle for his event, and he publicized it throughout Spain, um, and he is an actual you know, Spanish count uh, who owns that castle. Uh, Belmonte Castle was... Uh, in um, what's the hell? Uh, Flesh and Blood. Have you ever seen the movie Flesh and Blood? With yes, I have. Yeah, Jeffrey Jason Lee. So that was the castle for that. And if you've ever seen the movie where Charlton Heston called El Cid, oh shit, way back, yeah, way back, right? We fought on the same grounds that the tournament joust that that castle is held on. That's where we fought. So the 2014 event, we were fighting you know, where Charlton Heston was doing jousting, you know, 40 years before or 50 years before uh, for movies. So really cool. It's a great historical castle. There's really neat things there. The following year, uh, we went to Malbork Castle, which was called Marienburg, which was the home of the Teutonic Knights. And wow. we fought there. The following year, we went to uh, Montemoya uh, Veo in uh, Portugal. Fought in a beautiful castle there. The next year, we were at Spotrup Castle in Denmark. Uh, then we went to uh, Schoon Palace in Scotland, uh, which is where all the Scottish kings were crowned, were uh, on the Moot Hill at Schoon Palace. So, the, so that's really cool. And then uh, the following year, we went to the uh, ancient Kiev which is a reproduction of the city of, of Kiev from the 11th century uh, that they're rebuilding. Uh, and it's just immense. They're building the full fortifications. We stayed in the fortification walls in Ukraine, right? It was just, just an amazing experience. So, and of course, this year we got COVIDed out. We were supposed so, to go yeah. back to Spain. Now, as traveling Americans, uh, give me a quick rundown of what it's like to represent the country and just be involved because you, you brought up the festival aspect. Uh, give us the rundown of like what it's like to be Team America when you are not armored up and ready to smash people at one uh, of those things. So Team America is pretty diverse, right? When it goes over there, it's pretty diverse. So we've got people, it's their first time traveling overseas. And then you've got military veterans who've been traveling all over the world for most of their lives. So you've got that split of veteran traveler and new traveler. Uh, 
some people come across as very American, right? And in Europe, that's not so great. You don't want to come across as a chest thumping American there. They, they don't particularly care for that. Uh, maybe being a little more subtle about who you are and what you're about is a better course of action. You get a better experience. Uh, so uh, traveling is really cool. Meeting the, the pe people are people, right? And so when you're at these festivals overseas at these big tournaments, you know, everyone's getting along, you know, you're drinking with people speaking 30 languages. You know, we have uh, what we call our cultural exchange, which is a drinking night where everyone brings booze that's native to their country. And we share bottles of it. And, and basically, you know, our scene puts away the real world politics, right? When yeah. we're together, whether we are, you know, and it's a little hard nowadays to not get, you know, jabbed a little bit at our current politics, but because everyone's going to poke fun, but for the most part, it's, it's really cool. And, uh, you know, there's real friendships built that are going to become lifelong friendships. I have friends, you know, in Poland that will be my friends for, you know, till I'm gone. Uh, I have, you know, friends all over the planet now. We're like, hey, you want to come over here and teach a class or you want to uh, you want to go on a tour of a thing? You know, I've had private tours of, of places in Poland and Scotland and and, you know, museums and uh, all over the place. It's just wild, you know, and because everyone's got some sort of attachment somewhere uh, in their network. And uh, we kind of as a as a group try to all work together on it. Once again, that's another direct correlation that hardcore kids can understand. There's uh, an entire festival season in Europe and being in a band, having traveled there, you have the same similar thing where you now have friends from all over the world that you look forward to. If you go back or they come travel to yours. And so um, people listening are definitely going to relate to this. Now it's a good way to go from medieval castles to pub crawls. One of the things that you had to do in America to kind of get the word out because it's a, like an insulated, not uh, mainstream uh, information was you started having actual fights at pub crawls. Can you get into that a little bit? Yeah. So uh, we uh, so the United States isn't so up on the medieval shit. OK, you want Rev War, Civil War. United States, everyone knows their own local history about that stuff. But medieval stuff. You know, folks know Excalibur, Conan, or, or movies that they see, but they don't think about medieval stuff being near them. And so I said, how do we get this to the local people? You know, yeah, we've been, you know, 2 million views on this and 3 million views on that, right? But that's just views. It's not actually seeing it in person. So we started doing some local pub crawls around here and, uh, one one of our guys uh, set it up for us, and it wasn't my it wasn't even my idea. It was someone else's idea, and uh, it was Ken's idea. And we went over there, and it was super successful. And everyone had a good time doing it. And we got to meet with our locals. And next thing I know, the locals are like, "Hey, can you come to my pub? Hey, can, you want to do an event with us?" 
Uh, and so we use as a best practice and now people all over the country for their groups, it's like, Hey, you want to build your group? You got those three guys. How do you get more people? Well, you want to start doing some pub crawls. You want to start doing some public demos. You want to start, you know, marching in a local parade, right. And doing some sword fighting as you walk down the street, you know, stuff like that. Uh, make sure that you of course clear it with, uh, uh, your local government to make sure that they don't tax you or throw you in the clink for bringing a sword around. So uh, you got to make sure that that stuff's clear. Uh, luckily, I live in New Hampshire, so it's really easy for me here. Uh, but some states, like I don't think you can do that in Massachusetts without getting a permit. Yeah, I imagine uh, armored knights without permits would be kind of an interesting thing at Massachusetts for their, their weapons thing and all. But one of the things that when I, when we just talked about all this is you went from a kid in high school who was just psyched from something, you know, Ren Fair, to you run an entire business of training people to not only get better at fighting, but just get better in their own health. And then you are competing at an international level. You're building a U.S. league to continue the medieval sport. And, and there's an amazing drive in you that just keeps pushing this culture and then where do you think that comes from when you when you look at all the things that you have to do to do the next thing to do the next thing? What, why do you uh, how do you keep creating new things to keep pushing what you're doing? Uh, so circling back a bit, the reason why I built what I built was so I could do it myself. Right. It's, it was kind of selfish initially. And then once I realized how I was helping people change their lives, you know, and I had done it in the SCA. I had built a community in the SCA. Uh, my SCA group was, is rather large and successful and still existing, still running without me. Uh, in fact, it might be running better without me uh, for all I know, but there, uh, that community was something that I thought that I could kind of bring here into this. And so, that sense of community is really now my main driver. Uh, I think that if folks are part of something, they're less likely to slip into dark places. Uh, and I think this can help more than it hinders. Yeah, there's a violent aspect to it, but we're helping people's health, their mental health, and making them healthier, but also that sense of community. You know, we're all part of something bigger than us. And I drive this because I think it's good for all of us to be part of something bigger. Uh, and to, it's also an escape from what's going on in, you know, on your everyday news, right? We have something to look forward to. You know, I'm working right now towards U.S. Nationals. We're holding that on the 24th and 25th of October uh, in Squaw Valley, we would now called Olympic Valley, California. I'm going to have probably a hundred fighters at this thing. Uh, 10 events over two days. It's a big sports festival. Uh, and our community on the West coast is all converging on this. And we even have people from around the country, even though it's a pandemic, right. Trying to do this safely and go out there. So we've, We've all got our separate bed and breakfasts. We're all masking, doing all the stuff, all those precautions. But our community has come together to go do this big event, right? Uh, that's awesome. So it's. I think the to answer your question, it's uh, the motivator is building community. 
No, and you could see that even at um, the smallest levels when you guys came to This Is Hardcore for the first time, uh, there was a fun camaraderie of the two teams, whatever they were, smashing each other and then picking each other up. And that is relevant in the hardcore scenes at the mosh pits. The same thing to be said about the overall escape from real life and the more common denominator bond of friendship that comes from a shared experience versus looking for the differences. And I know in a polarized political atmosphere and with COVID, sometimes with social media, groups get torn apart. But it seems like the more you're invested in the culture and the activity, the tighter your bonds will be. Do you agree with that? I absolutely agree with that. I, and I also think that this is also a good time to find people who are looking for a place, you know? So yeah, we're in the midst of, of this mayhem and world of negativity, but there are people still looking for community every day, you know, and I'm not saying we take the place of religion, but we kind of take the place of religion, right? So you, you've got, a community where people can go do a thing. We all share these experiences together. We all know what it's like to train, right? We're all training. We watch it on social media. You know, everyone's Instagram shows their, their selfie with a kettlebell or with a rope or a sword or whatever. Right. And now a lot of these people we've met peripherally through social media, and now we're going to come together and we get together in this, this big event and realize shit, you know, those guys are the same as we are. And, uh, and as long as you're not going in there with a chip on your shoulder, looking for a fight, you know, outside of the fighting field, uh, you're going to have a good time and you're going to meet some really cool people. You may not get along with everybody, but if you act like a pro and you're going to find more people that you're similar with than you're different with. No, that's, that's exactly my experience. And from traveling up and down the East coast, it's the same thing. You go to someone's town, you respect the little bit of culture difference, but you grow by becoming friends with people from New York, Long Island, Boston, you know, and, and there's so much of that in your culture with the different teams, especially in the U.S. leagues, because it's a shared experience. And I have to wonder if do you think with the uh, pop culture and the Internet as a, and I and I hate using the word because, I mean, I grew up on Dungeons and Dragons. I grew up with long hair. I grew up. Get, uh, in heavy metal, nerd? And, the and, word and, nerd. Uh, yeah, I fucking hate it. I hate the two words I hate saying is I hate saying nerd and I hate saying LARPing because I think our culture not and I won't say our culture was you know appropriated, but no, our culture is cool as shit. Whether it was Star Wars, whether it was Conan, do you feel that in the modern 2020 world with younger kids being so much more open minded that you have a better chance of bringing people into the sport now? I absolutely do. So one thing we didn't have when we were, so my age group or in the group just before us are like the pioneers of this, this nerd culture shit. Right. So, yeah. right. So we're, we're this nerd culture stuff. And so what happens in the late eighties, early nineties, all these con consoles come out and people start playing video games and play, start playing magic, the gathering on top of D and D and they start doing these things and playing Pokemon and all that stuff that kids are doing now at seven, eight years old that we didn't do. We didn't have those openings and those fantastical world options. You know, we didn't have all these Marvel movies. We didn't have Lord of the Rings movies. We actually had to read the books. Yeah. Right. We didn't have, you know, Avatar, the, the, 
the last airbender. We didn't have that stuff. We had comic books. Well, that media has made it easier for people to get involved in nerd things, which has really become mainstream things. You know, since Disney and, and Marvel, you know, blew the lid off of Star Wars and and Marvel stuff and everything, it's, you know, permeated our culture, you know, that this just doing some medieval stuff is not so difficult. Um, Game of Thrones helped us quite a bit. Um, you know, all of these these medieval things, hell, the Budweiser commercials with knights yeah. in them, right? Everything has medieval shit in it now. And so it's not as, I don't think it's as stigmatized as it had been. And also I think the sophistication level of what we're certainly doing with steel, but we're also getting a lot of success with our foam stuff too. So we do not just do steel. We also have a, a foam community that's not LARPing. It's not doing live action role play. It's using what we use as practice methods, but giving it an, a big open field feel, kind of like SCA stuff. Uh, and that includes our entire community. So we're trying to be more inclusive than exclusive. And so I think the whole nerd term is changing on how people view it. Uh, I don't really like using it, but it's a, it's a quick and lazy descriptor, uh, like the nerd athlete. <laughs> uh, but I think that nerd stigma is mostly going away. You know, when you look at fantasy football, all that is is Dungeons and Dragons for football players. No, I agree wholeheartedly. Football fans, right? So they're, they're just fantasy gaming. And it's just another version of a fantasy game, which is what all of that stuff is. It is not what this is, right? The Once you get into steel fighting, you know, and you're doing armored combat, it is real fighting. It is, you know, stitches and, you know, stitches and broken hands and, and you know, scars on your eyebrow and all that stuff. It's fighting. Uh, granted, you're wearing armor, but you're hitting each other with real battle axes. So it goes quickly from just nerd stuff playing, right, where most people think of it when they first see it, to holy shit, that guy just got brained with an axe. And when I, you I, see your buddy get uh, hit with a helmet off and they got to scoop a little blood out of the sand, right, and he's got to go to the hospital, and, you know, to, to get the, the cracked skull checked out. Right. That's how serious this shit. Yeah, is. it's it's the real deal um, in touching on nerd culture and uh, medievalism. But also, uh, and, and you know this because we speak, um, the Brazilian jiu jitsu culture is that same kind of uh, dichotomy where it's intelligent people who have uh, a lot of intellectual pursuits mm -hmm. and professionally would not be seen doing these things but some of the most dangerous people on the mats are doctors and lawyers and people who do not, con uh, do not specifically carry themselves in society as an aggressor. And so I wonder how much of your community are that type of people where you wouldn't see it, that they're the aggressor. And uh, how many of the people do you think came in as a nerd thinking like, well, I like this, so I'm going to be good at it and failed. Uh, we've had a lot of both of those. So we've had a lot of the nerd come in, but because he has, you know, he's been 
he, he while we were dating girls, he he learned the sword, right? Those guys, yeah. those guys come and go very quickly. They can't survive a workout. Then sometimes what we get is we get uh, the gung-ho uh, semi-pro football player, former military, I'm going to come in and whip on these nerds guy who comes through and they get their ass handed to them on day one and they put their tail between their legs and they leave. You never see them again. We get those too. Uh, the good news is, is most people stick around because most people coming in to do this come in with the intent of actually trying to learn it uh, and, and, and try to be part of a community. So uh, we have both of those. Uh, some of my most dangerous people are my most quiet people. No, I, I agree wholeheartedly that it's, it's the quiet ones who are just confidently quiet that you have to really be aware of. Now, you're a coach as well as just being um, an athlete. And at times, do you feel that you have to do um, some mental work with people that want to achieve goals? And how do you help them with that? Well, so you have to learn the person, figure out what motivates them first. Uh, and then sometimes you have to have some hard truths and sometimes you can't really tell them the truth, right? You've got to motivate them in other ways. Uh, it depends on the day, right? So uh, you got to figure out how, how people are motivated, but really what you have to do is care for them, right? And build trust. And you're going to get the right response as a coach if your student trusts you or your athlete trusts you. Uh, so you're going to have to poke and prod and cajole and figure out what it is that makes that person tick and what they understand. You know, you know, you go from, uh, I had one student in the SCA who, you know, to get him through a finals of a tournament of a crown tournament was, you know, throw the cutter, basically referring to Mariano Rivera. Cause I knew that he was a Yankees fan. Right. And Mariano was the greatest closer of all time, even though I'm a Sox fan. Uh, I still give him his, his props. Right. But that helped Brennan win his first crown tournament. Uh, here, uh, it, it's, you know, breathing exercises. It's, you know, making sure they get the right nutrition. Are you sleeping? Hey, have you gone to the doctor for that, you know, to get the MRI on your knee? Right. So, caring for your people and knowing what it is that they need uh knowing that some people need a little tough love and that some people need to be pampered a little bit to a degree uh there's only so far you're going to go with that but you got to figure out what your individuals are and so that means you have to be compassionate and you kind of have to be empathic and i think that as a person has made me a better person um I had a chip on my shoulder for a couple of decades, right? I was always prove myself, prove myself, prove myself, right? And I wasn't trying to prove it to you. I was trying to prove it to me, but I had to be compassionate to me too. I didn't know how to do that. Uh, so that aspect of it uh, has come with age and wisdom and watching people walk down dark paths, Uh and figuring out how to not let myself walk down those same dark paths. No, so introspection. No, that that's incredible that you acknowledge that. And that's one of the things that 
comes across immediately with you. If you ask, if I ask you a question, whether it's SCA or this, you're an open book in that regard, but I could tell that you're not able to immediately subscribe. Like this is exactly what you need to do. And and I think I asked you early on, you're like, well, I didn't see what you're doing to even know what the hell you're talking about. You know? And that was a lot of people when they give advice, give it openly without knowing what the person really is getting. And that's always something I took from you. And I think you were a king at the time. So you're like, what the hell is this guy even bothering me for? But you're quick, like, what do you do? I need to know to know how to help you. And uh, I, I was always appreciated that. One of the things that you touched on, and it, 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 it's been blowing my mind, and I've been talking about it with some SEA friends, is the adaptation of the foam training. And as someone who has done it longer than a lot of people, I felt for a long time that the failure in SCA training because of the rattan stick is that every blow could legitimately hurt. So if we dial down some of our blows with a foam padding, we could build skill because we're not breaking our training partners. And That's when I see exactly right. And I see you guys as steel fighters using foam and I got excited and I'm watching these videos. And I mean, the one group, you had a big group out in a park and I'm like, that looks a lot more fun and something I could do all day. than get smacked 40 something times in my leg with a wooden stick. How did you, how did you as a fighter who went from wood to steel adapt the phone fighting? Uh, So remember I'm an old man and I have kids, right? Yeah. So uh, I don't know everything. And that's one of the things that I have learned is that I don't, I don't know everything. And by watching others do things and looking at the success of others, uh, we adopted foam here in 2015. That's when we adopted using it here. So that was a year into the school. uh, And we were going too hard then. So we had to cut back on it because honestly, martial arts equipment, that your traditional martial arts equipment doesn't cut it for the full contact stuff that we were doing. Um, we were breaking each other in foam. What we figured out was in, in Europe that they were using, they were ba- making specialized kits for fighting with heavier foam weapons, which is what we were using that allowed the punching, the kicking and the throwing. So we upgraded all of our gear and are still in the process of doing it, um, of upgrading everything. And now that we have done so, we're like, oh, now we understand how they're getting so much suit time in. So if you watch, you know, Eastern Europeans who've been doing this longer than us, uh, they've been using foam stuff for a couple of decades. And so... I learned from watching them and I learned from, you know, paying attention to what my young fighters were saying because they were watching this stuff and going, Hey, we should do more of this. And I give my son cat an immense amount of credit with this because he has to argue with me about a lot of things, right? Cause I'm a stubborn old man, but <laughs> he, uh, honestly, it, it's good. We have a great rapport because we push back at each other. Neither of us are yes people. And we both have strong personalities, so we will debate. And uh, he won that debate handily. Uh, it has really helped me with training my fighters, and it has helped us in growing our community and retaining our community. So when someone gets injured uh, with steel, they're out. They're not training for a while. Well, how do you nurse them back to health? Well, 
now we've got this foam, foam training. They can come back and do some foam training on Sundays and go, all right, the tendonitis, like me, I'm experiencing some tendonitis. First time in 30 something years, I've had elbow tendonitis. I'm just recovering from it. But it was, it's my first time. I went out last weekend, not this, the weekend before, and did some pole arm in the, in the, uh, the melees uh, that we were doing. We had like 60 of us out there doing wow, foam melees. Wow, that's a big number, man. Well, we started, that was uh, our battle day seven. We started battle days the 28th of June, doing them every two weeks. And we have gone from the first time there were like six of us, 12, 24, 30-something, 60, and we got a battle day on Sunday this weekend, and I'm expecting another, you know, 20 people at that. So we're just going to keep growing it, and we're running it very similarly to SCA Melees, except no one's getting hurt because when we do our outdoor battle days, there's no punching, kicking, or throwing unless it's a specific game with people with specific training. Other than that, it's just lightest hit. You get hit, you go res. You get hit, you go res, right? And that's the game. And as soon as you go to res, you can come back in, just like SCA Woods battles or town battles, except no one's getting broken because we're all wearing the padding and we're all hitting each other with padded weapons and everyone's learning situational awareness. They're doing cardio. They're doing teamwork. They're learning how to handle situations that they've never handled before. And sometimes we put some terrain features in to, to mix up the mind a little bit, to focus the fighting. We do some capture the flag stuff. We do some dog skull stuff, jugger, uh, et cetera. We do different things to keep it fresh and keep people engaged. And what's happening is now people are coming into our community going, wow, you guys are cool. You do this stuff. Oh, and you do that stuff too. Someday I would like to do that. But for now, I'm going to do this. And so it's got a lower barrier to entry and everyone comes in and plays with us. And that's really what we want to do is want to play and have, have everyone have a good time because life's too damn short to have bad times. You're, you're 10 years ahead of the SCA. And, and I, and this is something I've been saying for quite some time in that if I want to drill like, uh, and this all comes from jujitsu and this is where I was going to get to in the SCA training, you just open spar with limited instruction. So it's such a harder curveball to learn. And I watch your videos where you're teaching combinations and I'm watching your videos where you're teaching body movements. And I, and I've been speaking to uh, my friends in the SCA. I'm like, we got to go to foam and we need to strip down how we teach and how we train so we could have more repetition. And I also said that the SCA uh, because of the people that are coming in are not getting any younger when they're starting. We're not getting 22 year old kids. We're getting 35 year old people where we used to get 22 year old people. Yeah. And, those are coming to me. Yeah. And, and, and exactly the next part is the stigmatism with foam came from the videos about the fireball and the lightning bolt LARP videos. Yep. But really if we're going to, as a culture, whether it's medievalism through swords or wood, the foam fighting is the way you could do this every weekend. And still go to work Monday. And, and I've been saying that it's going to be the death of the SCA is going to be when a non magic focused storytelling focused game comes out. That's foam with some medieval clothing. And it sounds like you guys are already on the precipice of this. Have you seen any people push back and be like, Oh, what are you guys going to do? Throw lightning bolts back or has it all been positive? 
No, we've had some of that. It's come come from the SCA. We yeah. even had someone threaten to call the Board of Health on us. Jeez, uh, what an idiots for having for having a an event. So yeah, that's that's ridiculous. Yeah. So you know, so there's gatekeeping and there's some fear, right? So, that's what I was going to get to. Is has there been that? <laughs> yeah, there's some of that, but you know what? We don't really pay attention to it. You know, we're doing our thing. That's their thing. And it's also still my thing. I can still go do SCA whenever I want to and go visit and do it. Right. But right now they're not playing. We are. So people want to play. They can come play with us. Uh, And I hope people don't give them a hard time for doing that. You know, we're masked up. We're fighting. We're, We're doing all the stuff we're supposed to do outdoors in the sunshine, vitamin D all over the place. Right. And just having a good time living our lives. Uh, so that was unfortunate that people decided to, to play that way with that. And there are some people even in within our steel community that look at what we're doing and going, well, that's very LARPy. Well, you know what? Maybe you shouldn't kink shame. Right. Yeah, yeah right? absolutely. Right. We're doing our thing and we're having a good time and uh, our people are having a good time. And that's really what it's about. Right. Our community loves it. And so we're doing what our community loves. Um, again, the correlations between the hardcore scene and your fighting scene and also in uh, BJJ are very similar. There are constant problems in the uh, jiu-jitsu community with the way that we train being so hard. And there are different schools and every school you go to is different where they train really hard or they go lighter, but an injury puts you on the sidelines. Mm-hmm. And so hearing that you're being ahead of the curve and thinking about ways, did you feel like this is something that would become a encompass group in what you're doing or a separate group, or do you just think this is just a mode of training while you can? I think it, it's uh, dovetails nicely with everything that we're doing. So it, it now is, is integrated into our methodology. Um, so I'm going to backtrack a little bit is uh, what you were saying about being too hard. Uh, we were training hard here. And people just could not keep up. There were some people who could do it, but we had a core crew. And if you didn't make it, you didn't make it. You didn't make the cut. You didn't make it, right? You would just wander off because it was too hard. We were beating the hell out of each other. We did that for a couple of years. We went a little too far onto that achieving achievement level uh, for the school. And uh, it cost us some good people who would have had a better time if we had had room for casual or more casual than us. And uh, one of the great things that occurred in changing, you know, in last year's uh, closing of Armored Combat League was Armored Combat Sports uh, is a lot more relaxed. Uh, Yes, we have high-level competitors, but we're also leaving room for people who want to be more casual at this. And then when you find that you're going to have room for those folks in your community to be more casual, you go, well, what about the rest of our community? What do they get out of this? And then you start looking that we're using foam in our training methods already. Why don't we expand foam so that more people can participate that are not as athletically gifted, and even the playing field. That's why we do lightest touch. 
So anyone can take out anyone. So the person who's the runner with the clipboard for our SEAL events is now out there participating with everybody, having a good time. It's a lot like what the fencing community has done for the SCA, right? So there are a lot more people doing SCA fencing than are doing Rattan now because it's lighter and more people can do it. Uh, it takes less tax, it's less taxing. That's where foam is kind of fitting into our community. So we've got our foam community, which is just part of our community. It's not a foam community, it is our community. So steel and foam converge together as one big group of people doing sword fighting. Uh, and then within it, there's going to be physical stratification based on the activity you perform in. But no one's better than anybody else. And I think that's the, the key to it. We don't look down our nose at foam. We embrace it and go, hey, this is part of us, right? And, you know, nerd sports are nerd sports, right? Going back to that nerd thing, right? And so they're doing foam. We're doing foam. We're doing steel. We can do rattan. We can do any of them, right? It, and uh, it's not closed off for us. We're going to have rattan as well. So wow. there's we're going to do rattan uh, with our with our methods so that people can phase in and out. Right. So people can come with rattan, you know, armor that's ready for SCA. Come try our point system. Come do our thing like, oh, you're doing three uh, one minute rounds in longsword. Let's try that. Let's see how many instead of having to to have someone judge the shot, you know, and you have to go through all that stuff. You have referees counting blows right that's, that's incredible that you're and it's doing. not perfect it's not perfect like any sport right referees can blow a call but it's certainly a lot better than than just leaving it to someone's honor or not in my opinion uh, i think that tr- i think that you'll see people get to that and with all the things that you have in place in running and and also in plan how do you promote and how do you push beyond the medievalists, the nerds? What have you done to try to get into the media and just, because I mean, obviously you read this article, but like what kind of tactics do you use beyond the pub crawls and stuff we talked about previously to get what you're doing out to the average walk, walk guy down the street? Well, we use social media. We get contacted quite a bit by the, the written press local news, et cetera. Of course, we had had the TV show Night Fight, uh, which was on History Channel. That did well for us as well. So that's out on YouTube where people can go watch it. Um, and that was, you know, that was our, that was our thing. Um, but that was then. And today we use that as continued promotions. It's a, it's a big infomercial out on the web for us. But we go to these big sports fests right? We uh, get involved with boxing organizations and martial arts organizations. Like, you know, I'm at uh, Atlantic City for the uh, uh, Martial Arts Expo that's at the Tropicana, the Action Martial Arts. I go oh, to that. Oh, that's awesome. So, uh, and we're going to be doing that again probably next year uh, after this stuff all dies out. Um, we either have a vaccine or whatever. Uh, we all forget about it. Uh, whatever it is. Um, 
I don't know, right? So none of us do. But working with other organizations, uh, not just making, you know, not just thinking that I know everything and getting connected with other people who know more than me. I, you know, my corporate time, I was, I did tech stuff and I was a project manager. Those things I can do, right? But I'm not a promoter, though I've been promoting for a while and have been mildly successful at it. Uh, what we need are promoters, right? Uh, things that we could do, uh, is you know more advertising but we do this all low budget because i'm just a guy working out of his gym so uh, down the road as we become more successful our resources will be greater and we'll be able to pursue other things that i know or don't know uh but we're using instagram we've got some people using TikTok. we got you know people uh throughout promoting themselves if, if someone's promoting themselves in this sport, they're promoting us. Absolutely. Right? No, right? absolutely. Rival companies promoting their sport are promoting mine, right? SCA in its existence promotes what I do. Absolutely. Right? You know, uh, the rising tide raises all ships. This is literally right? a quote that has been used in many podcasts by a future guest where Richie has always says, high tide raises all the ships. And I'm so glad because I was going to say that. I'm glad you got to that. Before yeah, I, I got it. Uh, Richie? <laughs> yeah, you my got, boy Richie. Coming yeah, yeah. He's, and that's the thing. Um, going off of what you're doing, you, 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 you play a lot of roles here where you and you brought up your project managing background. Do you feel more like someone who is curating and then at times hands on? And how do you balance the roles? Do you just uh, take it day by day? Yeah. And it's minute by minute. Uh, so, you know, luckily I've got some really good people around me that have grown into uh, some really great roles. You know, Kat takes a lot of my work here at the school. I don't have to teach as many classes as I used to. Right. In fact, I teach less now day to day than I have my entire time doing this. Kat's got classes, you know, he does like six or seven classes a week. Marie's got uh, four classes a week. Uh, I've got a few other instructors doing classes. Uh, Greg and Mikey, uh, they're, they're all doing classes. So I've got instructors now that are good enough at this and at training this stuff that they can take that job off of my plate so I can devote my time to some more things. And as more people get trained up, you know, yes, it's do it yourself, but once someone's trained to do a job and they're good at it, they take that. And I, I like agency, here you go, do that job, make that work. Right. And then the next one and the next one, I want these groups to become successful all over the country because they make my life easier. Right. If they can self-support and self-promote and, and land gigs, I don't have to do it to make sure that the sport's growing. They're doing the work for me. Maybe I don't have to focus on setting up events in California when there's people out there doing that. And that's what we're getting to now. Uh, this big event out in California. Yeah, I set this up, but I've got a partner now on Armor Combat Sports. I've got two great partners. I've got uh, Brennan Freeman, who's out of Dallas, Warlord uh, Combat Academy. 
so he's got a facility kind of like the Knights Hall down in Dallas. And then I've got Brad Blackman, who uh, comes out of the entertainment industry, a retired Marine in the entertainment industry who's in Las Vegas. And uh, uh, he is doing some pretty cool stuff, too. Uh, and between us now, we're growing this because I felt it was uh, this job was too big for one person and too important for one person. So I wanted partners that were not personal friends of mine, but people from the sport who I was impressed with how they handled themselves, how they were growing the sport in their own areas or what their ideas were like. And so I reached out to these guys to become my partners on Armor Combat Sports so that we could grow this together. And also their younger minds. Uh, again, I'm, you know, I'm 55 and I've got, you know, a 30, uh, two people in their early thirties working with me on this. So they've got good energy, uh, and they have a different mindset and viewpoint. Uh, so they can keep me walking my, my proper, just, you know, if I'm starting to go off into madness, they can point it out and go, Hey, you know, that, that might not be a great idea. And I'll listen to them. So, uh, I think that's a great, uh, part of our strength is our ability to listen to each other and have some divergent viewpoints. No, I agree wholeheartedly. I think if any endeavor is to be taken and successful, the best thing you can do as the center figure is to train and have people decentralized. So you can just do something else. Like I don't have to focus on this. That person handles this. And I guess uh, because you had brought up the guy's warrior gym, would you say that you would be better focused interacting with folks who have gyms and help them build something of their own? Or would you see yourself opening multiple nights halls if that was a possibility? I think, I think both, I think both and both are, both are happening. Oh, that's um, awesome. Congratulations. So both are happening. Uh, we're in the midst of working on our South Boston location. We're actually trying to find wow, South like yeah, and at, swords. So, <laughs> so if anyone's familiar with Boston, Right. North of Boston's a bitch to get to from anyone south of Boston and vice versa. So we're to put something that south southeast uh, mass Rhode Island and uh, southern Massachusetts can really get to. Uh, and now and because I'm in Nashua, north of Boston, it's easy to get to me. So uh, we're going to put something down there on the other side of 495. We're on the top end. We'll put something on the bottom end somewhere uh, looking Dedham, Norwood, somewhere down in that zone so that people can gravitate there instead of just coming to the Knights Hall, they can go to that location. And then once a month or a couple of times a month, I rotate through or my other instructors rotate through. Uh, and so we've get these multiple locations. And then I'm also working with some other folks who are trainers to do training that we've we do here in their schools and there'll be an announcement about uh, a trainer coming up real soon. Uh, that's going to be doing that at his school and at some other schools um, as well as warlord growing in their area. And I hope that they expand because they've got a great program as well. And I'd love to see Brad open something up in Vegas as well. So um, this is so big that no one person can monopolize it and it's good, right? 
There should be Absolutely. lots of ideas out there. There should be lots of ways to do it. Not everyone's going to get along. So everyone should be able to have their own space to make their own thing. Uh, I don't think that, that it should be completely controlled. I think it should be guided uh, so that it's done smartly and doesn't hurt the sport for everyone else. You know, so I have, I have a little bit of a problem with folks who are not following insurance policy rules and I have problems with folks who are not following real safety guidelines. They don't have them. There are a lot of like copycats out there now that are okay. just creating steel fighting in their space. Right. But they're not really following anyone's rules or just creating it for a rent fair or whatever. And if they don't do that, they're going to cost us momentum and growth by doing things unsafely. And I don't want to see that happen. So that's that's like the one thing I have some problem with. Other than that, I don't care. We could have 10 leagues. I don't give a shit, right, in the U.S. Uh, what I'd rather have is have everyone doing it safely and doing it in a positive manner uh, locally. No, that, and that relates, again, back to us in that everybody in every part of the country has their own way and, and their own vibe of what they do at shows. But because of how quick social media runs and the internet, a bad, a bad situation could happen on the East coast and it'll be seen as, Oh, we don't want that on the West coast. And it could bring things down. If in um, my band in 2005 had a shooting outside of a show in Tucson, mm-hmm. and it's probably one of the darker uh, like marks on, you know, our record for having that and it, it fucked up our band to be able to tour and you know there's a thousand things that came from that and thankfully that was 15 years ago but that's the kind of bad thing that can happen in a small place like tucson arizona that had a national ripple and, yeah like and, great white yeah exactly with great white with the fires as well yeah so great white affects me every day right now i believe it because all the mills in new england had to meet new standards for fire regulations Oh my God. And then places are a pain in the ass. To have right. To, right. To so they affect, they affect the cost of real estate in new England because of the cost of, of fire suppression. Right. Wow. And it, by the way, for good reason, Yeah, right? for absolutely good reason, right. For good reason. But it is, you know, that great white show affected everything up here. It affects wow. my world. Wow. So you're a trainer. And uh, relating back to the stuff that I get from jujitsu, people always tell me if I just lose X amount of pounds. Oh yeah, I'm you saw me this. drinking a Coke. No, no, it's totally fine. My, vice. my hey. vice, everybody, and I have <laughs> yeah, to yeah. give it up again. Yeah, we got to have our stimulants from time to time. I think that. Uh, what would you say to someone who wants to try this but they feel not in shape or out of weight? Would you say come back to me when you're lean and clean, or let me help you build? Let me help you. Let let us help you. Uh, I've helped people. Uh, I've got a few good success stories. One guy, 135 pounds lives out in uh, Oklahoma, right? Congratulations. That's awesome. Yeah. I've got people here, 40, 50 pounds, uh, off their diabetes meds, uh, right in, right in house, uh, number of them, uh, folks who had trouble carrying groceries right up the stairs in New York city, right? They're, they're healthy and happy now because they started doing following my workout regimen and doing the stuff that we do. So uh, I also have a, a like a, a little 
paleo s diet on my website that people can follow that works for me and it wor- seems to work for anyone who decides to follow it um so uh it's kind of basic but uh it's basically meat meats and veggies meats veggies water and some portion control and after that you're going to lose that weight and you'll be you'll be great um but i'm not a doctor nor am i nor did I stay in a Holiday Inn Express last night. <laughs> now, I want to take this all the way back. You're the kid who played Dungeons and Dragons, and now you're a man with an entire enterprise that is based upon a culture that you fell in love with as a teenager. Where would you say um, your priorities have shifted as you grew into this? Do you feel like promoting the sport, promoting the culture, and promoting the community was your number one thought, or do you feel like you just wanted to continue to infect people with the kind of positivity that you saw that came from this whole thing? Uh, I don't know if I consciously put it together that way. Uh, the community aspect uh, was something that I felt I was pretty decent at. Uh, wasn't conscious though. Um, so initially it was to infect everyone with the steel thing. Absolutely. So there were people to fight. But then as I started to have success in helping people change their bodies, this was a whole new world for me, right? So you know, I had done SCA and helped people become good SCA fighters. And I had done some dietary stuff there and it had encouraged my fighters to do some of those things and and some of that. But really the, uh, the success I started having from the school and started to happen throughout the United States in our league from people who were following what we were doing or reacting to what we were doing. They might not have been doing exactly what we were doing, but it was a direct reaction to what we were doing. Um, With those, uh, I think that started to push me more towards like, oh, I'm getting more people doing this. So then I started to put more work into doing that. And there was a period of time where I became demotivated because I was having or unmotivated because I was, I was having some, some difficulties in vision with my former business partner. And that led to some, you know, lack of give a fuck right on, on other people's stuff. And I'm like, this is not me. This is too negative. I don't want to live this way. Uh, and so he made it really easy and for me to, to go a different direction and basically bring my life back to positivity. And, uh, I felt like I aged 10 years in three. Uh, and now I feel like I've gone back. We've gone back in time. Uh, I feel great mentally now, physically, uh, my community is thriving even in this world of uncertainty. Uh, we're growing which I did not expect. I expected us to maybe even close our doors uh, in March. Things were looking pretty dire. Uh, so things look pretty good uh, now that, you know, we know how to, how to handle that. We've been open for business since June 14th because we closed down until June 14th where I started holding some classes. We opened up slowly. Uh, I had missed it so much. So you don't know, you don't know what you're missing until you're missing it, right? Till it's gone. And I hadn't taught any classes and I hadn't run an event or any of that stuff. And, you know, from March to 
um, to June. And I had been running events every week, every other weekend for five years. So every other weekend for five years, 24 to 28, 30 events a year, depending on the year. Um, And then running classes during the week. So my full-time gig was this plus running shows. This killed all the shows. And so I had to kind of reassess and find out what was important to me in all of this. And, you know, I spent my closed down time with my family. And what we found was what we were missing the most was our community. And so when we opened back up in June, I opened up small. I opened up with all COVID preparations. And we take this, you know, very seriously. Uh distancing, temperature checks, all of that stuff, right? And then our community started to come back. Our community fundraised for us while we were away. That's incredible. Right? So they they basically took care of uh, two months' rent, basically. Two months of operations they took care of, which, you know, we didn't get any help. And it's not like this, this is uh, booming in money. So uh, – they helped my community helped us and we realized that our community was everything to us. So when we came out of this, it was how do we give back to the community more than we had in the past? And uh, that I think is what's carrying our momentum now and motivates me every day uh, is how do we keep this community growing, thriving and happy? And that's what I'm going to keep doing. Man, that's incredible. And I think that a lot of industries, I had friends who had tattoo shops who were worried about losing their stuff. And uh, jiu-jitsu, obviously, uh, there are still schools that are closed. We got lucky that our school, because it was outside Philadelphia County, was able to open July 4th. And it was that same thing, the uncertainty. As a business person, I saw it in so many of my friends' faces. But it's always been the community that'll bring uh, people together in these bad times. So you were you doing and do you ever do any kind of like specific Zoom classes for people that are remote? Was that something that you were tied into? I uh, started doing that during the uh, during COVID in April. I started doing Zoom classes. And so I started conducting Zoom classes a few times a week and uh, I am continuing to do them. I've replaced those. We run 18 classes here a week. So in in those peak times so i stopped doing those classes once we opened back up in june well mid-july once we opened up to our full curriculum again uh i stopped doing regular zooms during the week but i do on sundays uh have a zoom class i'm going to open up more zoom classes uh as we go into fall summertime seemed to to have people dip out of zooms uh it was beautiful out. And then I had folks in Seattle who were dealing with the fires. So they couldn't yeah. do anything. They couldn't, they couldn't uh, breathe. So I didn't want them doing any exercising, you know, swinging a, at a, at a pal. So uh, I do do zoom classes. I do uh, just straight online classes with zoom um, on Sundays. Uh, and then that's going to expand more as the winter goes on. Uh, and those are going to be specific to sword and shield fighting, uh, mostly combination type work. So it would be very similar to what you're familiar with with Pell work, but doing my system. 
No, that's awesome. And I think that the adapt the adaption of uh what do you say the Zoom and uh some of the people use Skype, you saw industries really take on that just so that way they could keep the doors open and keep people uh interacting and not losing interest. So I mean, we're getting closer to when you got to wrap up. And I, I really just got to say that your story, although it's about sword fighting, is so much more about personal ambition and drive and entrepreneurship that there's you have so much more in common at, at, a, at a wide bit, uh, view like I have on what you guys do. And I, it's just amazing to hear this. And I'm so happy that we got to have you guys as a part of This Is Hardcore as a demo and oh, we can't wait to come back. By the way, I will say the exact same thing. Uh, when the when the when the world is open, you guys are going to be back uh, front and center. And I just wanted you to kind of um, explain to those who are listening, just like uh, how they can get in touch with you, what services that they might be able to get remote, or if they want to come in, and just uh, give me a solid wrap up here, man. Jay, it's it's been awesome to have you on the podcast, and I. I I knew that when we got to talking that there would be way more um, common denominators and things that, that were different from the hardcore scene. And I, I just appreciate you taking the chance of being on the show. Well, thanks for having me for one. It give me a chance to, to ramble a little bit, right. And, and tell, tell my tale. But uh, so if you want to find out about what we do, we're first off, we're on Facebook, look up the Knights hall, the Knights hall. Uh, so we're on Facebook there. Uh, Armored Combat Sports. Uh, so armoredcombatsports.com. You can find us there. You can find the Knights Hall on Instagram. I'm there as well. Uh, Sir J on Twitter, but I don't really use Twitter very much. Uh, it's not my not my thing. Uh, I do use Facebook quite a bit. Uh, if you find Armored Combat Sports, it's Armored Combat Sports Community is what you're looking for in Facebook, and just you know, answer the little questionnaire and then I'll add you to the community. And that encompasses, we have fighters from around the planet on that group. Uh, we try to promote uh, armorers that are safe, inexpensive and reliable on that group. So we will put, so to basically to try to take some of your fears away of sending this money into the void, we've found the right people we kind of promote those people on our page. Uh, never ever pay more than $4,000 for your suit of armor uh, from anyone in the United States. All right. So that's, that's one hint Two, uh, if you want to find us here at the Knights Hall, we're in Nashua, New Hampshire. Uh, if you're, if you go onto the Knights Hall's Facebook page or the knightshall.com, you can connect to us there. Uh, and then if you want to be part of those classes, uh, just send me an, an email to J that's J A Y E at armored sports.com. And then we'll connect you with our classes and or answer whatever questions you may have. Now, I mean, this story is of, uh, of a, a sword fighter who became a community leader, a businessman, a coach, a trainer, and I, I'm happy that I got to see just the transition end where you went from Rattan and SCA to Steel. And I'm amazed at what you've accomplished with the Knights Hall. And in the last couple of weeks, seeing with the foam fighting, it got me so excited. And actually telling people, like, whatever it is they're doing, we need to do it down here just because of you guys are still leading from the front. And I just appreciate your time. 
And uh, we look forward to having you back on This Is Hardcore. And I hope everybody checks out the stuff the Knights Hall has. And I know that a lot of the younger kids in hardcore, and especially the older guys, there's so many more similarities that start as interest, whether it's comics, whether it's D&D, whether it's anime. And it can lead you into a suit of armor like it did for me 13 years ago, where next thing you know, you have a separate group of friends and you're doing similar road trips, but it's to get in armor and hit each other. And I appreciate the SCA just for giving me that exposure to a whole different world. And I appreciate you, Jay, for what you're doing for people now. Well, thank you. And I really appreciate what the SCA did for me as well. Uh, Joe Farrell, you know, took me under his wing and uh, showed me a lot. And my journey is not just him. There are so many people from the SCA who influenced my life, whether it was, uh, you know, treating me well or treating me poorly, right? They influenced my life. And uh, they allowed me to make my choices. And eventually it led to this road. I met my wife in the SCA. We've been married 32 years. You know, so uh, that, that world has given me an awful lot. And it built a foundation for me to be able to do this. Uh, what I can say is the final piece of, of, of this is don't be afraid to innovate. Right. People are going to say, oh, you can't make that work. You can make it work. All it takes is work. And that's the that's the scary part is all it takes is work. So that's that, man. Dude, that was awesome. Um, I appreciate you and good luck in the 2020 and into the, the awesome opening of 2021 and good things to come. Thanks, man. And and you, too. You know, it must be killing you guys, you know, to, to not be put on shows. What you said about being used to having X amount of events and then work, it, it, that is another thing that correlates to the hardcore scene where, you know, the last shows were in early March and our entire scene is now going into live streaming. And because we are a very small piece of the music industry puzzle, the only articles written about the shows are talking about 1000 to 3000 to 10,000 venues. And you see these things are like concerts are not going to return for X amount of years. And it's like, we're doing shows with 150 people. We're doing shows at 200 people. None of this applies to us, but because we're the underbelly and the subculture and the underground, they don't want to really talk about you. No, no, no. And that's the other half of it. So we're left waiting on the rest of an industry to dictate the policies that are going to be in place. So much like you're talking about how you're doing things in the park, you're going to see outside shows next year. You're going to see shows at the VFWs again in the halls because the clubs that do not close because they run out of money, they're going to be limited capacity. So we're going to innovate. And I think that what you said about you can, you know, you know, you're going to have to innovate, but it'll work as long as it takes work is a great way to end this. And I just appreciate you uh, giving us, that inspiration and sentiment to uh, end the episode and uh, check out the Knights Hall, check out Jay Brooks and uh, Armor Combat Sports, man. This has been awesome. Joe, Thank you. I love what you guys do. So, and it's been great to know you all this time. You've been nothing but supportive of our community and our little bit of craziness. You even gave, you know, gave it a, a shot yourself. So uh, I love, I love fighting with you. No, man. Uh, like I, especially, especially in the, uh, the world of things now, seeing, seeing the foam, seeing the ability to train and not have to worry about, you know, I could break my hand and I can't, I broke my hand early January this year. 
and it, and it put me out of work. It put me out of jujitsu. I was actually going to jujitsu classes and taking the cl- like the actual technique and, and drill, but mm-hmm. was told you're not allowed to live roll. And right. even that, even that was a mentally hard thing, but having something to do was more important. And, uh, I just like to give a facility to people that want to try to better themselves and also a culture that, that works towards that. So, so if, if you're into learning how to do that, man, you know, I'm more than happy to help. No, I, I appreciate that. And that's something that uh, I'll be reaching out off, off, in, off air about, because I think a lot of people need someone who's already been down the road. It's easy to look at some guy who's, 22 ripped abs and like this is what you need to eat but you got to look at it from a different point of view and you give that separate perspective where i watched you completely transform not only your your physical presence but your uh your your activities to this new world and it's very exciting and uh you're just one of the first people that are outside the scope of hardcore that i immediately was like if i'm doing a podcast this guy's got to be on there because of how much you've done so thank you once again dude thank you man thanks for having me have a great day All right, man. You too. Like I said, man, he's absolutely incredible. That story is so fucking cool. I mean, (laughs) he had me tripping the minute he said he cut the guy's finger off. But no, seriously, I mean, this is the spirit of DIY. This is the passion. This is the inspiration. So many of our previous guests have highlighted so many of the things that he put into action in his own stuff. And I think the more that we talk to people on this podcast, whether they're band people, label people, videographers, you're going to see that the same traits are existent in the people that make things happen. And it always starts with a little bit of DIY, a ton of inspiration. You need confidence and you need that take no for an answer. You know, there's always a way to figure this shit out. And, and that's the kind of people that I'm most excited and interested in talking to. And that's why we talked to them for so long. Because their stories are not only inspiring. But they're informative. And I definitely think Jay falls well within that line. For someone who has not been in a hardcore punk band. But has been to This Is Hardcore. He's probably been to more of This Hardcore than some of you. So thank you so much for listening. Next week we got our boy Phil Irate. Want I really want you guys to check out. The Don't Stand Alone docu-series. Anthony Marishi, a.k.a. Wrench from 10-Yard Fight. You heard the ad earlier. You can pre-order this. This is more of what we're talking about. Here's DIY people, punk rock and hardcore people that have taken their um, creativity and their drive and built something. And with his own creativity and his own inspiration to be more than just a hardcore singer, he's directed this docuseries. He's self-releasing it. And we got to support our own. You know, it's not just about bands, it's about people that are pushing and supporting the culture. And for a low price of 10 or $12, you can support all this. And I really look forward to it. He's going to be a guest coming on in a couple weeks. We're going to record him actually very soon. So he's going to be on the podcast when it airs, which is be 1120. But you should pre-order this now. Go to C-O-D-E-C Projects and you can order that. Aside from that, I really hope that you check in next week. We have my brother Phil from Irate, who is in the Judas Syndrome, but is now in a band called Knights of the Black. And I know a lot of Irate fans were psyched when we were talking about them on the Castle Heights episode with Kevin Castle. And I really 
can't wait for you to hear his story. He has such a chill, relaxed presence, and it's such a divergence from his super aggressive animated stage thing that it's just such a two people, but the same brain. And we jump into a lot of different conversations. Uh, you know, he, he's well, he's, he's well-versed in horror, just a really interesting guy. And it was good to connect with someone who, you know, we weren't best friends. We didn't share milkshakes, but every time we ran across each other, it was always love and respect. And it was great to have him on to kind of continue supporting the whole Castle Heights thing that we kind of touched on. And with so many kids excited about Irate, I really hope that you guys check out the episode. I know we were talking about Patreon, and it's something that I got to implement. I got to figure out the right way to do it. I'm looking into it now. For now, make sure that you are subscribing. Make sure that you're following. We post that shit on social media. Share it. All you SCA people who, if you're still listening, God bless you. Check out older episodes. Tell some friends. The biggest thing for me is that I love hearing from people on social media. You're not bothering me. I do have a lot going on, but I love hearing your take, what you got from it, and even some ideas on guests that you think would be cool. It's been um, a really positive experience to have interaction, especially without shows and things to do. And I really can't tell you the importance of doing this and hearing from the people that are listening. So you're never bothering me. Check us out on TIHC Fest at Twitter. This is Hardcore Fest on Facebook. This is Hardcore Fest on Instagram. I am the Joe Hardcore on Instagram, and you can find me on Twitter. Thank you so much. Check it out next week. Phil Irate slash Judas Syndrome slash the Knights of the Black. Take care.